This is Lock and Key, a limited series podcast from the independent Newfoundland and Labrador. And I'm Andy Bullman, one of your hosts, and I'm here with Lou Quinton, your other host and the editor of this limited series podcast. Our first episode is a little different than the other episodes. This is brought to us by Justin Brake, and Justin is going to take us into the tent city in St. John's, Newfoundland. And you'll hear from us as the series continues. I've just arrived at the Tent City for Change encampment in St. John's. Tent cities or encampments, they've been popping up in cities across the country more frequently in recent years. So they're not new. We know that for most or all of the folks who live in tent cities, they've experienced homelessness or mental health crises or addiction or some other form of trauma. Or any combination of these things. Here's what else we know. They're often portrayed in a negative light by media who tend to focus on, you know, complaints or the inconveniences that they cause to cities or the bylaws that they may be breaking. So in terms of, you know, the city's stance, the mayor remains firm about these evictions moving forward, saying that they pose a health hazard and a risk to the public. Advocates say there has to be a better way and are hoping that their concerns are listened to. Those same bylaws that are often used by municipalities to get a court injunction to have the encampments removed by police. They'd been given notice to leave, but some refused to go, and things got violent. We're doing a podcast series on housing and homelessness in Newfoundland and Labrador. And we can't do that without hearing from those who have become a symbol of just how bad the crisis is in our province. So I'm here to spend a couple days and nights with unhoused folks to better understand the circumstances they're facing and the barriers they're dealing with. It's late November when I arrive, and there's no snow on the ground. Yet. I introduced myself to several people, some of whom have been living in tents since early October, when the encampment was first established across the road from Confederation Building on Prince Philip Drive. I set up my tent among theirs, on the backside of Colonial Building, along a green wooden fence separating the provincial grounds from the city grounds of Bannerman Park. As a university student, I used to rent a room in a heritage home right across the street on Rennie's Mill Road. The street literally has mansions on it, where residents can look out their window and see Tent City. On the other side of Colonial Building, there's another mansion. This one belongs to the Lieutenant Gup, or is it Lieutenant? Anyways, the Queen, no, the King's representative from Newfoundland and Labrador, Joan Aylward, who can also look out her window at Government House and see the two dozen or so unhoused folks living in unmansion-like conditions. Nice shack, one person says my first evening at Tent City. Wonder if she has room for a few more. Almost immediately after I arrive, people begin pulling me aside to tell me their stories. I don't record most of them. They just wanted someone to talk to, 
but on two occasions I do record. Because these two women who came to me, they were adamant their stories be told. Due to the complexities of navigating government programs and services, and for other reasons that make these women vulnerable to having their names made public, we're granting them anonymity and using alternative names. I was outside the tent, but I could hear you talking to him and telling him that you love him. And... Yeah. He was helping, uh, he calls him Dada. He was helping Dada and Mama. He calls him Mama. He was helping Mama and Dada do the dishes. Um. And he was taking this stuff out of the dishwasher truck. <laughs> I was like, God's gonna be this now. This is Mandy. She's been homeless for a few years now. When she was in her early 20s, she moved in with her sick mother to take care of her. Then, after her mom died, she met a man in St. John's and moved to the Avalon Peninsula to be with him. That relationship turned abusive, though, and she was eventually forced to make a harrowing escape with the help of police. But that meant having nowhere else to go. So she found herself at the Naomi Center, a St. John's shelter for young women. Eventually she got her own place and started dating another man. Another man who also turned out to be abusive. And Mandy found herself on the streets again. I was between couch-surfing, sleeping on the streets, park benches, anywhere I could sleep, literally eating out of garbage cans. Going downtown and when people was throwing out all them foods, I used to take it so I could eat. I did that for two years, between couch-surfing and living on the streets, eating out of garbage. Then she met a new partner, and then Mandy got pregnant. But that relationship too was abusive, and she had to leave to keep her and her unborn baby safe. But as she'd learned, being a single mom without a place to live she'd be forced to go to Child, Youth, and Family Services, or CYFS. I ended up spending two or three months in that hospital before my son was born. I was always told I couldn't have children, so I didn't know what I wanted to do. But once he was born, I knew I wanted to try to raise him if I could. But then um, he was born, I was homeless, nowhere for him to live. I couldn't take him in a tent or on the streets. So I decided to put him in the care of CYFS in hopes that I would get housing and possibility he would be coming home. So I ended up getting a beautiful two-bedroom house. CYFS told me if I had my house a year, because I was almost four years homeless, if I could keep a stable housing for a year, my son would be returned back to me. But just when Mandy thought she was safe and on track to have stable housing for a year, she was blindsided by her landlord, who told her he wanted to up the rent. I told him, well, you have to wait for a year and then give me a six-month notice. Then I, he said, well, I'm not waiting a year. I never signed no contract. It was month to month. He said I would, he was going to give me a three-month eviction if I wasn't willing to go sooner. So I told him that I would need at least four months to be able to come up with the rent he wanted. So that's when he came and gave me the two, uh, three months non-eviction notice. I went from cow surfing to back to living in tents and on the streets, begging for money for food, uh, heating out of garbage cans once again, something I didn't think I would have to do. 
then I uh, had to make a very hard decision. They were only giving me a year. I knew at that point, once I became homeless again, there was probably not going to be a chance because I need to find another place. So I had no other option. If I wanted to still be in his life and see him and I have an open adoption, it was best to give him up for adoption. So I made the oddest decision to give him up on one condition. He will go to his godparents. Mandy has a hard time talking about this, obviously. It's re-traumatizing her just to share her story. But she really wants her story to be told because she wants others to know that landlords have this much power over people's lives. They have the ability to force people onto the streets, to put them in situations where they're eating out of garbage cans, and they can force young mothers into making one of the most dreaded decisions they could ever have to make, all because they know there are others who will pay more. And it's not just her. Mandy says she's met six other mothers who've been put in the same situation. I have talked to six other mothers that had to either put their kids with family members for custody or put them up for adoption. Because they couldn't get because stable housing. Because they could not get the stable FCs. And Charged. that's only six that I am known of. Mandy also has health complications. In fact, the morning after our interview and after spending one of the coldest nights in her tent, she had multiple seizures was ambulanced to the hospital, medicated, and released back onto the streets. Now she's back at the encampment and back to sleeping on the cold ground. On my first day at Tent City, I noticed some folks in plain clothes. They're speaking with residents and writing in their notepads. As I'm putting up my tent, one of them comes over and introduces himself. He's with Thrive. Thrive is a community organization that helps vulnerable people get connected with the government or community agencies that can best meet their needs. We shake hands and I tell him I'm a journalist. He offers to help me put up my tent. I say thanks, but I'm all good, and he goes back to speaking with residents. But Thrive being here in the encampment, it makes me wonder why, if community groups are on the ground here doing the work they do, why are there more than two dozen people still here? End Homelessness St. John's is another community group with boots on the ground here. They work with public and community stakeholders on system-wide planning to prevent and end homelessness in the capital city. What we're trying to effectively do is coordinate all of the resources that any individual who might be experiencing homelessness can access. This is Doug Pawson, Executive Director of End Homelessness St. John's. And I would say over the last 18 to 24 months has been you know, that system being fully strained, fully tapped out, full caseloads for case management services, shelters, you know, exploding in numbers and demand. On top of that, you've got the cost of living crisis and uh, the housing crisis. And really, you've got a housing crisis and a healthcare crisis, kind of like it's a confluence of these events. And what's happening is the most vulnerable neighbors of ours get squeezed out of housing. They don't get access to the, the kind of mental health or addiction services that they might need or primary health services. And so you've got a full a system that's operating at, at capacity and it's not able to serve the growing demand that's being placed on it because governments for decades have just not invested in housing. They've not invested in, in mental health and health care. And as a result, 
world. Here we are today where people are the most vulnerable we've ever seen and their needs are the most acute we've ever seen. And there's just not enough responses for those needs. While community groups are showing up to help, the bulk of support for Tent City for Change are the neighbors and community volunteers. Folks like Lee Turner. Um, I'm Lee Turner, and I am just like one of the, the non-resident protesters here. So trying to do some activist work around housing and securing long-term accessible housing for the, the folks and the residents here at Tent City. Turner works in research and innovation with Newfoundland and Labrador Health Services. Um, I got involved because I was just seeing what was going on and offering to bring food and supplies and whatever else I could. And I started building relationships with the residents and then just got into um, like the, the volunteer group. And we've been you know working all together ever since so we can build capacity and really make sure that the residents here get, uh, you know, first of all, long term accessible housing, uh, but also all of the survival needs uh, that they have now are met through the volunteers and the communities. In the two nights I spend at Tent City, it seems like there's a steady flow of volunteers coming and going. Some of them are regulars, and others just residents or business owners or members of church groups, dropping off a box of coffee or a tray of mac and cheese. It's clear that there are many people in St. John's who care about the folks here and who want to help. But Tent City's been around for two months now. And tonight, the season's first snowfall. Fortunately for the resident protesters here, volunteers brought a large tent with a wood stove. They burn firewood and crowd into the tent to keep warm. But there's only space for so many at a time, so they take turns. Around 10.30, I pack it in for the night and retreat to my tent. I have an air mattress, two sleeping bags, and a base layer of clothes. But even with that, I wake up in the middle of the night and I'm chilled to the bone. By sunrise, I feel like complete crap. I can't imagine doing this every night. When I get up, I head to Tim's and grab a couple boxes of coffee for the residents. Then I check my email and socials, and I find out it's actually National Housing Day in Canada. The day was created in 2000, after an advocacy group called the Toronto Disaster Relief Committee declared homelessness to be a national disaster two years earlier in 1998. The group released a state of emergency declaration calling for all levels of government to invest 1% of their budgets into building social housing. The declaration was endorsed by people, community groups, churches, labor unions, and even some government agencies. Then finally, in 2017, nearly two decades later, this. Years of hard work have culminated in the national housing strategy, a robust, comprehensive, life-changing plan to help Canadians get into homes and stay there. The National Housing Strategy represents a once-in-a-generation $40 billion vision of how we can protect the affordability of the current affordable housing stock in Canada, build four times as many units as the past decade, repair three times as many units as the past decade, and reduce chronic homelessness by 50%. That was six years ago. A lot's changed since then, like the pandemic's impact on the economy, higher interest rates and higher costs of borrowing. And the national housing strategy? In November 2022, Canada's Auditor General said the programs in place to create new housing units aren't working. 
and that the national supply of affordable housing won't be anywhere near sufficient unless new programs that reflect today's economic reality are put in place. That's why when St. John's East MP Joanne Thompson announced in September of this year that the federal government was giving $5 million to Stella Circle to renovate a former office building into 15 new homes for women, there wasn't a whole lot of fanfare, because 15 new homes doesn't even put a dent in the demand. Last June, upward of around 278 people in St. John's alone were experiencing homelessness. That's according to End Homelessness St. John's. And around 180 of those people were experiencing chronic homelessness. Chronic homelessness is when somebody's been homeless for at least a year, or when they've been repeatedly homeless over a period of time. Days after Thompson's announcement, the first tents went up outside Confederation Building. And the movement now known as Tent City for Change was born. The Honourable the Premier. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Of course, when anyone was without a home or a place to lay their head at night... Two weeks later, Newfoundland and Labrador Premier Andrew Fury made this announcement in the House of Assembly. We can all do better, Mr. Speaker. It reflects on society in general. It is a crisis that's happening across the country, Mr. Speaker. We're announced a five-point plan today, including the additional monies to renovate vacant housing units, 143 of them. We introduced 750 new units to be, that, is currently, that are currently being built, 850 more that are on the way to being built. We had a five-point plan that will help developers today, Mr. Speaker. We've, we, I'm not saying that this is enough, Mr. Speaker. We will continue to evolve as the crisis evolves. Better late than never, but the announcement doesn't do much for those experiencing homelessness now. But hold on a second. The 750 units that the Premier, and also that the Housing Minister Paul Pike and Finance Minister Siobhan Cody have all referred to, well, a CBC investigation found that of those 750 new builds, just 11 of them are done and ready for tenants. The revelation didn't sit well with NDP leader Jim Din. Will the Premier admit that what his minister said is a lie? And has, mis and has misled the House and the people of this province about the actual numbers of houses built. That question landed Din in legislative jail. He was banned from speaking in the House of Assembly unless he retracted his question. He never did. And he spent the rest of the fall sitting, sitting in silence. But he hasn't stopped speaking about the crisis. Since I was an MHA, it's become steadily worse. I will tell you, it was difficult when I was first elected to try to find people homes, but we could. And the four and a half years since, it's become steadily worse. I could see it. I saw it last year. And I, I, I think my first time I was starting to help people who were actually choosing to live out in the rough than go into the shelter. They were afraid to go into the shelter system. The NDP has advocated for policies the party says would create more affordable housing like investing in non-market community-based housing options, like cooperative housing, and things like rent control, so that what happened to Mandy, who we heard from earlier, doesn't happen to anyone else. In the opening 48 hours of the provincial legislature's fall sitting, both the Progressive Conservatives and the NDP asked the Liberal government for an emergency debate on housing. The Fury government said no. Then in October, the NDP proposed an all-party committee be struck to discuss solutions. The Fury government again said no. Then in late November, an announcement. This one came after the first snowfall and amid public outcry over the city of St. John's decision to close the public washrooms used by tent city residents. This time, a task force on homelessness, including government representatives, community groups, and other stakeholders. Everyone's in on this new force to come up with a plan. 
everyone except unhoused folks themselves. I, I've been thinking lately of the Charlie Brown cartoon with Lucy and the football. Every time Lucy promises to hold the football so Charlie Brown will kick it, and each time Charlie Brown goes to kick it, and each time she pulls the uh, ball away and he lands on his back. Din says it's clear the government is doing everything it can to protect its own image as the situation gains more public attention. All of a sudden now the problem is acute and we have to have a task force. So what happened in between? And I'm, I really, I'm sorry, but I really think they're not really in, motivated to address the situation. They're more motivated about protecting themselves. Another woman who we're calling Sophie introduces herself to me. Her partner, a man in his 30s, is standing beside her, leaning on a cane. He can barely walk and is clearly in pain. We'll call him Kevin. Kevin tries talking to me, but he has trouble getting the words out. So Sophie tells me their story while he nods along. He's talking about how many years he got to wait. He's got to wait over two years to get seen. That's not fair. He needs to clean up. If not, he can be sick. He's supposed to be in a sterile place. Sophie and Kevin explain that he has a serious condition related to his bowels and that he's on a wait list for surgery. I can tell by the way he's walking that he's in a lot of pain. He can't even sit down. And he can't use the washroom properly. Right now, they say he desperately needs a shower. And an infection could be fatal. Are you able to do that ride still? Or? Yep. You want to go to the gallery, please? Yeah. Oh, we'll go to the gallery. Okay, you guys wait right there. I'm going to pull my car up right there, okay? Okay. We head to the Gathering Place, a community health center that serves as an emergency shelter, a soup kitchen, and it also provides other services to vulnerable folks in the city. Sophie and Kevin have missed the window for visitors to shower, but we try anyway, because Sophie says the matter is urgent. We don't have any beds. I mean, it's all NL housing that controls what, what we get access, or like, they, we don't even get to choose who stays here. It's all NL housing who manages all the shelters, right? Right, yeah. Um, and every night when we call for people, it's always just, especially men, I think right now, there's no male beds in the city. Even, even last night we had someone present and yeah, they shelter. They I think he made his way down actually to Ten City. Because yeah. it's nowhere in the city for him still. Yeah, there are several people. The worker at the front desk is nice. He says there's no one available to supervise the shower facilities, but to try again in an hour. When we return, after some discussion and waiting, they let Kevin have a shower. So bottom line, I guess the issues that uh, we're dealing with now, which shouldn't be dealing with, is that he medically needs to be in somewhere where he can be looked after. We're hoping that, that that's going to happen. And eventually, well, for everybody here, to have homes and stuff like that. But my concern, and I know this sounds selfish, but from my point of view, my, my boyfriend, soon to be husband, I want him to be looked after. And I mean, I want everybody to be looked after too, but if I just need him to be seen and looked after. I'm just worried that he's going to end up getting sick and dying. Like, yeah. and, and it's scary. While staying at Tent City, I noticed something. I notice that I care more now about how this all ends than I did before I arrived. Not because I didn't care before, but because after meeting many of the folks here, after hearing their stories, looking into their eyes, and just sharing time and space with them, these interactions have helped humanize them. They're no longer like homeless to me. They are real people with real names, real struggles, real feelings, and real hopes and dreams. And the other thing I notice is that I'm now part of a minority of people who feel extreme urgency about the situation. Since then, 
every night when I go to bed, I think about the folks at Tent City. And I can't help but feel that those with the power to get them housed maybe aren't losing sleep. The MHA for the riding Tent City's in is Provincial Cabinet Minister John Abbott. I asked him for an interview because people here say he hasn't visited them. And on National Housing Day, MHA John Abbott declines the interview request and says he has been down to the encampment, but his people won't tell me when or how many times or what he took from the visit. What I don't understand is, if housing is a human right, how are governments getting away with this, with failing to ensure everyone is able to have safe, accessible housing? If there's anyone in the province who can answer the question, it's Carrie Majid. Executive Director of the Newfoundland and Labrador Human Rights Commission. I mean, this has always happened. There's always been unhoused people. There's always been poverty. But it really has come to the forefront. People are calling our office, looking for housing, looking for food, looking for money to pay rent, or even saying they can't find rental housing. They can't get into shelters. Shelters are unsafe. So we're hearing this at the Human Rights Commission. And it's unique because it's, I've been there like over 10 years and that's never happened before. So why now? So people are at, you know, they're struggling. They don't know where to go to turn to. Government may or may not be responsive. There may not be capacity out there in not-for-profit organizations to deal with this, to support people. So they see the name Human Rights Commission and they call our office. Because we have this kind of concept about human rights. What does that mean? We all have them. The UN Declaration of Human Rights and other international conventions and documents say that we all have human rights simply because we're born. They're fundamental to who we are and, and our society. But that's not certainly how it, it plays out in practice. Majid is right. We all have rights just by existing and for the purposes of this discussion, the human right to housing. According to the United Nations Human Rights Commissioner, the right to adequate housing is recognized as part of the right to an adequate standard of living. That's in the 1948 Universal Declaration of Human Rights, of which Canada is a signatory. And the right to housing is enshrined in other international covenants as well. Together, they form what's known as international law. So here in Canada, that official recognition and law, it came much later. In 2019, the federal government passed the National Housing Strategy Act, a new law recognizing adequate housing as a human right and committing the federal government to making sure that human right is realized, like on the ground, in real life. So, great. A law recognizing adequate housing as a human right. Finally. Decades after Canada signed international treaties, saying as much. So, what's the holdup? We've had this conversation before in our office, and how can we as a commission respond to this? Um, it's a struggle because we're limited by human rights legislation. So what does that actually mean in practice? Does that mean that everybody is guaranteed housing like full stop, safe and secure and equitable housing, full stop, like health care coverage, you know, that it's just part of the social sort of fabric of Canada. Uh, you know, I wish that was the case, but I don't, that's certainly not the case. 
Why is that not the case when Canada recognized the right to adequate housing in federal law four years ago? Because that was just the first step. The provinces have to, too. And therein lies Kerry Majid and the NL Human Rights Commission's inability to do much for the unhoused folks calling for help. So, where is Newfoundland and Labrador on housing as a human right? Because on November 22nd, National Housing Day in Canada, the province's minister responsible for housing, Paul Pike, didn't mention once in his statement that the government recognizes adequate housing as a human right. Instead, in the face of growing public outrage over the province and the city of St. John's's failure to house the folks at Tent City, the province struck a task force. What policies are we coming up with? Are we just meeting the bare minimum of human need? Or are we really trying to think about how do we want our society to function and how do we want people to exist in that society? Are we talking about removing like underlying systemic barriers, uh, institutional or otherwise, that exist for people? Or are we focused on, you know, reports or task forces or kind of more superficial level of conversation? At least it's happening, I -hmm. suppose, at, at one level. But, you know, I think we need to get deeper. Okay, I have to admit something. Even though I've been following and covering the story of Tent City for Change, I did not realize until now that throughout all of the discussion around housing and homelessness, Premier Andrew Fury, Housing Minister Paul Pike, John Abbott, the MHA for St. John's East Kitty Vitty, where the Tent City is, none of them have said publicly whether they believe adequate housing is a human right. I can't believe I didn't catch on to this sooner, but I also can't believe that it's true. So I dig some more. Surely there has to be a statement somewhere that the province's liberal government recognizes housing as a human right. So I look. But nothing. Nada. Zilch. It's a broader kind of way of approaching public policy through this human right lens. Who are we talking to? When we develop policy, who is at the table? How are we um, making decisions about where our money is being spent? Who is making those decisions? I think bottom line, it's that policy makers and decision makers have to understand that there's a link between housing and human dignity and that it is one of the like fundamental social determinants of health. If you don't have safe housing, how are you going to get to school? How are you going to find a job? How are you going to do all these different things that we expect of people before we deem them worthy of of supports and, uh, you know, that basic level of human dignity? Christmas, we should be talking about getting gifts and being around a Christmas tree and worrying about Christmas dinner and not worrying about getting home and getting medical attention. It's about, you know, it's, it's about human dignity. It's about uh, what we all aspire for, a place that we can call our own. They need to come out here and swing around everything they have that they could survive in. Vehicles, their phones, their new clothing, swing the walls so they can't go home buy expensive food, and pinch a tent and live the way we're living. If they make it four days, 
I will give them a pat on the back but I bet you with the second day they will be home on the I think if the government at that experience come for a week, I can guarantee they won't make it 24 hours. 48 the most. I think if they add that experience, they will look at it differently. I really think. Lock and Key is produced by Olivia Ball. It's edited by Lou Quinton, and I'm Andy Bullman, your co-host. Our music is by Jake Nichol. Our art is by Shan Lee Pomeroy. Thanks to Tom Baird and Sarah Swain. Justin Brake is the editor of The Independent, and for more in-depth stories about the housing crisis, you can go to theindependent.ca. And as always, we want to thank everyone who shared their stories with us over this past year. The Lock and Key podcast received funding from the Community Housing Transformation Center, the Center. However, the views expressed are the personal views of the author, and the Center accepts no responsibility for them.